Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jody Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet, and pay my respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Caroline Gebhardt. Caroline is a mental health counsellor, registered yoga teacher, and chi for two embodiment coach. She offers psychotherapy and embodiment coaching to adults, teens, and families at Harbour of Dreams Art, which is an expressive arts counselling practice in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. While specialising in disordered eating and parenting, she draws upon a blend of somatic and cognitive therapies from an attachment-based, trauma-sensitive, and polyvagal-informed framework. As a movement educator for 20-plus years and a mother of three, Caroline created Embodied, Mindful Movement as Mothering Medicine to help people deeply nourish themselves from the inside out. She believes in the power of meaning-making, of the shape-shifting to help discover one's truths and empowerment. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I uh, was reading your blogs and your website in preparation for this interview, and I just know there's going to be so uh, much juiciness and nuggets of wisdom for women out there struggling with food in their body. So, yeah, Absolutely. really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk and have the conversation. And yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, would you please share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and what led you to this work? Yes. So I grew up as a, well, a, a dancer as a child. I loved being in my own world and dancing. I loved music and movement. That led me down the road, I guess more in my teens, into aerobics. <laughs> so why dance to aerobics? I grew up in South Carolina in the USA. Mm -hmm. And in the South, much of the culture is a big focus on the outside in, I mean, from, from the outside and versus the inside out. And there was a lot of pressure to look a certain way, be a certain way, stay quiet, right? Mm. And smile, agree, don't push. Yeah. So I, I loved movement. I stepped away from dance and I got into aerobics, which was my, still my dance. I loved it. But it was also very much also leading me down a path of, oh, I should look a certain If I look like this, I'll get that, right? So those were, that was the narrative kind of passed down, passed down. And don't question it. This is the way, this is the path, capital T, capital P, right? Mm -hmm. And I also knew there was an innate knowing that this doesn't work, but I didn't know my way out. I was in this dark forest and I still didn't, and I was like, oh, I want this doesn't really work, but just as far as not being able to tune into a happier place within my body. I, I mm. thought I needed to change it. I thought yeah. I needed it to you know, look a certain way. It was never enough. I wasn't good at dieting. I wasn't good at all of that stuff, which is the innate kind of the foundation of it, but not good enough, right? And when I went to college, I studied journalism and 
also started teaching aerobics on the side and still was in that culture of trying to keep up and I just as far as exercise and eating the right thing and never feeling like I did it right, right? So I finally started seeing a therapist in college and in my early 20s. And that was the best thing I ever did for myself was to have the courage to ask for help Mm -hmm. and to say, it doesn't have to be this way. I'm very grateful to have had that little voice inside that said, no, it it doesn't have to be this way. There is another way. I will also say that I I was at the time, this is like 19, 20, I was reading um, a lot of Janine Roth books. Oh yeah. One of my my favorites too. Yeah. And her big thing was, Hey, you want to know your truths more than anything else more Mm -hmm. than. So anyway, so that helped me to see that it wasn't the career that was going to do it for me. It wasn't the look or the, you know, it it was, it's going to have to come from inside out. So therapy was, like I said, like just that really place where I could nuzzle in and, and find out some, a new path for myself and to grow into myself. And along the way I began, I was, I had some jobs along the way. I was in journalism for a while. And then I was in sales for a very short step. And then I started personal training. Uh, I wanted to use the movement because I knew it was powerful. I knew that there were so many messages within my own body and I was a journalism Mm. person. So I was a writer too. I still Mm. am. But, Mm -hmm. and so I had a way to marry the messages from my body with words. And when I would get stuck with the words, that was when therapy was very helpful to me because I did seek out a a therapist that also did body work. So it was very helpful in that way. And then I started personal training, working with a lot of people coming out of treatment of eating disorders, addictions, Mm. or people who had maybe never exercised before, but and needed a gentle way to go about it. So I taught mindful movement through resistance training, a lot of yoga in the kind of mid 2000s yoga started springing up in my area as far as studios. Yeah. And so, but the thing is, is especially with the yoga, because we'd slow down a little bit and a sort of breath work or subtle honing in on something stuff would come up. And I would say, take that to your therapist. <laughs> I knew mm-hmm. that it was something valuable to, to go see the therapist about. And then finally I said, I need to be this therapist. You know, I need to have more tools <laughs> yeah. in my toolbox. <laughs> so yeah, so then I you know, went back to school. And along the way, I had my own kids. And so as far as having that really fond awareness and appreciation for the relational dances, the attachment-based work, really grew by having my own children, but also knowing that healing is really helpful in relationship, relationships, Mm. plural. Yeah. So. Yeah. So quite a varied part. So when you said you were at college, is that university or is that sort of high school? It is. So what were you, did you study journalism? Did you study journalism originally and then go on to be obviously become a therapist later on. You went to Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So then I went to graduate school. Right. I see. see. It's interesting when you talk about Janine Roth, she's one of my gurus also. Let's dive deep into your way of working with women and trauma and disordered eating. And I guess this is also um, applicable to anyone suffering with any other kind of food weight or body image concern. So you've got a model called, and it's your model called M, just M, bodied. So Mm -hmm. can you tell our listeners what that is? 
Yes, like capital M, bodied. So embodied coming from the idea of the word mother. So embodied. Uh And how do we come home to our body in a mothering way? So it's embodied. Mindful movement is mothering medicine is what I like to call it. And how do we do that in a way that is using that idea of how would I apply that ideal mother to myself? So mother also can be a couple things here. Mother can be maybe possibly triggering, right? If we did not have that good enough mother, another thing is that's good enough mother is the other piece of it in the sense that we're not mother blaming, shaming. We're talking about when he proposed the idea of good enough mother, attunement, it doesn't have to be perfection, but it's, it's good enough attunement. Most of the time that we are able to see and sense and handle what the child needs and attend to that or comfort if not. So with that said, mother, mindful movement as mothering medicine, how do we mother ourselves? And the other piece on that is that mother, capital T, capital M, like mythic mother, we can have many mothers (laughs) talking about these relational dances. So this could be spiritual mother. This could be biological mother. This could be therapist mother. This could be neighbor mother, aunt mother. This could be the quality of just how you move throughout your day mother. So, Mm -hmm. so there are many different definitions, but it's a a nurturing sense of how can I mother myself when I say through movement and awareness of the body and awareness of body mind, the integration of in this body, can I be in my body? Can Mm -hmm. I live in my body throughout the day? Can I be aware when my body doesn't feel safe? Can I be aware? Yeah. 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 And In your blog, Embodied Attunement and Relational Dances as Mothering Medicine for Eating Disorders, you start by talking about safety. So I'm really glad you brought feeling unsafe in. Can you say more about what causes us to feel unsafe? Yeah, so, so many things. So I study polyvagal theory, Stephen Borges' polyvagal theory, and he coined the term neuroception. So it's that ability to kind of sense what is around us and does it automatically make us feel threatened Mm. or safe? And so this is a subconscious reaction. And so that can can be many things for many different people. It can be whether it's an old past trauma trigger, Mm -hmm. big T or a little T. I don't think anyone has talked about big T's and little T's yet. So do you mind if we just interrupt and you explain to our listeners what the difference is? Yeah, absolutely. So we hear, you might or might not hear a lot about trauma these days. It's talked about in the mental health field. As far as trauma, a lot of times, sometimes we think of it as something big has to happen, like an acute event, which yes, that is accurate. That would be what what we call like a big T trauma. A little T trauma is little paper cuts. So it could be like developmental or attachment trauma. It could be little things happening over time that just build up. And what might be trauma to me, if trauma is overwhelmed, too much, too fast, too soon, then what might be traumatic to me might not be traumatic to you. 
Mm -hmm. So that's where it gets nuanced there too, in the sense of we all have different makeups, we have different conditioning, in the sense of maybe there are people who are more sensitive than others, and that they absorb more, they're, they're more porous, they feel more. Does that make sense for it the does. big T and little T? Yeah. yeah, it's really good to let people know. And I think something really important to mention there too, is that you said a couple of times that it might be different for you to other people. And I think, and you'll probably find this as well in therapy and when people are having concerns, often they minimize their own trauma. Like it's not as big as someone who's had a big T trauma, for example. That's so important to mention as far as, especially in the disordered eating, feeding, eating body world, (laughs) just Mm. in the sense that the underlying issue is that not the only underlying issue, but one underlying issue, one common issue is it's not bad enough. What I'm dealing with isn't bad enough or I'm used to it. Isn't this how everybody feels? Yeah. So that's, that also gets into play that there is another way. Yeah, and so over time, all the and, and you mentioned some terms, attachment trauma, developmental trauma, and I've often mentioned complex trauma on this website. There's interpersonal trauma. I think for our listeners, basically they're all relational, I, I think. Is that how you would describe them as well? I, it happens I, in relationship or out of relationship? Yes, I really appreciate that you say that. Absolutely. I, I believe ultimately it is within relationship. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and we're talking about early relationships, so it brings us back to mothering and fathering. Obviously, typically, those early years, are it's the mothering energy anyway, so even if father is the primary yes, caregiver. Even, yes, absolutely. You know, we might have two dads. We might have, yes, yes. So in the sense that it's the oxytocin, <laughs> even those who are male, someone with a penis has oxytocin too, <laughs> You know, so yeah, there, I mean, there are studies that show, of course, birthing and nursing is going to produce more oxytocin than a female body does. Right. But uh, absolutely. Someone with a penis do can also have that wonderful oxytocin release and, and experience that Mm. and provide that for a child. So that's where we're talking about like the mother, like capital T, capital M, the mother, the mothering, like as a verb. Yeah. And when I interrupted you about big T and little T, we were talking about unsafety. So before we move on, I just wanted to check in if there was anything Mm. else you wanted to add to that. I think that overall is that it is so unique for each person, what's going to make someone feel safe and what's not. And I think that kind of recognizing that and shining light on that is so important. So we don't have assumptions of what someone should be feeling when they're feeling one way that they should feel another, because that gets into gaslighting. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. So honoring the little T's and the big T's. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when we do experience ruptures in those early relationships and early life that threaten our general feeling of or potential for safety, how does this then play out as we move through life? That's a big question. So (laughs) (laughs) in the world of food and eating, body issues, right, challenges, there are so many ways that it can manifest. And so we can have kind of the spectrum of disordered eating. We can have clinically diagnosed eating disorders. We can have, when I say even disordered eating, it might just be kind of periods throughout your life where it's stronger than others, right? Yeah. So in that way, I do look at it from a nervous system approach Mm -hmm. as far as that 
safety goes too, is that when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel that sense of threat in whatever way, shape, or form, maybe we weren't tended to, maybe we were never seen, maybe we were never heard or held, right? Literally and figuratively, then that can make the inference on the nervous system, on the brain as the, the, the infant is, is developing. How safe is the world? How do I need to cope in this world? Do I need to check out more to maintain so I can stay alive? Checking out, the, the dissociative qualities of checking out is a way to, to keep the body alive without really, without really dying. But it, it is a, a self-care response. With that said, another way would be fighting or fleeing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I look at those two things as we can be dissociative with how we nourish ourselves or how we move our body, how we live in our body. So it's not just about exercise. It's about having like a, a relationship with the body. So sometimes it's more dissociative, checked out, disconnected. I don't even know what I'm hungry for. I don't even know my belly's hungry or too full. Or it could be I go and I fight, 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 fight. I'm so sucked up away from the earth and so on the go, on the go, on the go. I'm all, how all this kind of constant charge about me mm. that I might have other behaviors that come into play too, that kind of keep me in that rigid on the go, the burst of adrenaline, just constantly, constantly coming through. So, and what happens physiologically is we bounce back and forth. So you'll hear people say, I'm going in a crash. Yeah. And we, we, then we're, we're looking at the body just sometimes it helps people to know that's how the body is taking care of us in the sense that Mm. we're trying to survive. So there is a part of us that wants to survive here. There's something that wants to be soothed. Let's Mm. find another way to do it. And so on the more ideal way of living is that, you know, what Stephen Porges, I mentioned before, calls the social engagement system. Mm -hmm. So that's where we still have that form of active and passive, but it's not fight flight. And it's not shut down or freeze, but it's, oh, I can, I can notice when I want to eat and how much and stop and rest and go play and work mm-hmm. and have my projects and, oh, I'm hungry again. It's time to go to bed. Being more in that can maybe even feel so far out of reach for people, but having moments of experiencing that comes with safety, comes with it's all okay. And that's going to be different for everyone, just depending on their makeup, their history. But as far as the idea that a lot of behaviors go around and around, either mm-hmm. when we are in overwhelm and it's that fight fight, or we're in overwhelm and we're checking out or the bouncing back and forth, how to get over into the social engagement system. So in the sense that the body physiologically knows it's safe. So we've got the digestive system on track. (laughs) Things are moving and flowing as they should. They don't get stuck. And then our heart and our brain and our lungs and our eye contact and our ears and our voice. So we can do this beautiful dance with others and with ourselves Mm. in terms of relating. Um, Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
You remind me a little bit then, it's, I've been a therapist for 20 years, but it wasn't actually till I became a mother that I really, I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't know any of this because I didn't study somatic psychotherapy, but even as you're talking, it just reminds me of the natural cycle of the child's day when you're doing, when I say good enough mothering, because yeah. I'm not a perfect mother either. But And actually I had a mother baby coach come out because I was so, my kids are through foster care so she came out and helped with attachment and all that kind of stuff but but also just like alerting me to the rhythm of the day around children around how they they eat they sleep and then they wake and then they eat and then they have some quiet time and then you do something a little bit busier and then it's like calming down again it just all sort of flows quite naturally I think for babies and for small children if we don't get in the way Right. Yeah. And what a beautiful example. There is a simplicity to it, right? And sometimes our culture, it's plural, give us this kind of story that we should go, go, go. Yeah. yeah and you see that with slight, I'm seeing in primary school, just kids mm-hmm. with activities every afternoon, like their whole life is just mm-hmm. full of busy. And it's just, I mean, I know my two, one of mine just says, no, I don't want to do anything. I'm tired after school. I want to come home and rest. Yeah. How beautiful is that? Yeah. There's been this kind of race to where are we going? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and even with COVID, it's still sometimes what, what I've experienced is still con- continue to push and push and push. Mm-hmm. Uh, but wait a second. This is a collective drama here. You know, exactly. These kids are overwhelmed. So, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, we're talking about eating issues, but we could be talking about busy or, or addiction or any of those other sort of concerns. Mm -hmm. But when women are struggling with these concerns, it becomes obviously very exhausting, exactly what we're talking about. How do we heal from this, I guess, is a good question. What do we need to do? (laughs) Such a great question. How do we heal from this? So there are so many answers to that question. But I would say inviting the body, exploring the possibility of allowing the body, to give you some information to guide you. That's one piece. So it's like a pathway in. And the reason being is when we can kind of sense where we are connected, where we are disconnected, or the quality of being connected or disconnected, how much can we be connected or disconnected, which is, there's no right or wrong here, mm. the you know, spectrum of this. Then we can say, ah, look at that. Is there a pattern here? Is there any sense of what's going on? So often, again, because it's so unique, it's hard to explain it in a nutshell, especially because the approaching the body first, it's not words. It's a felt sense. So first of all, kind of building on the relationship and therapy. Now, just FYI, I realize, you know, I'm talking about therapy here. Not everyone has access to therapy. So I will go into that too. In a safe feeling relationships. Maybe it's therapy. I'm going to use therapy, but it might be other relationships. So noticing when it's okay to notice more, when it's okay to notice what the avoidance is about, noticing when it's maybe okay to notice the fleeing. What could I be running away from? What am I running to? How am I trying to soothe? What feels too much to revisit? Where do I feel pressure in my body or tightness? or fogginess, or intensity, or I need to move or wiggle right here when this, when I talk about this. 
So it might be a felt sense in that regard. It might also be gestures, movements mm-hmm. people make that also can come up maybe repeatedly, maybe around when they're talking about something that then can be explored. So in the sense of when I say in therapy, in relationship, that we can start to create that kind of womb experience again in relationship that feels like we are able to be seen and heard and held sometimes too, right? Metaphorically, if necessary. So when that starts to happen, then we can start to have redos of those early dances. So those early patterns from in the womb to infancy, toddlerhood, early childhood, in those really crucial developmental years that we can say, perhaps I didn't get enough of this. So here's where I get more of it. Refed right here. I know that's very abstract sounding too. So in the relationship of seeing someone, talking to someone, having the eye contact, being able to possibly verbalize things, but at the same time, a felt sense of safety. I'm okay here. I belong here. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing starts to help someone to settle, helps the body to settle. So then eventually some more words might be found, but if not, we can also practice shapes, movements, postures, and not necessarily really explicitly, but more mm-hmm. implicitly. Mm-hmm. So for example, on the couch, right? The client's on the sofa or in their chair if they're on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, these days, right? And it's how okay is it to let the chair support you? you? Do you notice the chair underneath you? When you feel anger, where does it come up? Would it help to put a hand there? Do you need to push into something? Would it be okay? Does it feel better to contract the body or to open up and expand the body somewhere? Does one side feel more open than the other? In those ways, when we look at it from development, right? Like in the womb, to being held, to starting to open the eyes and look up around the world at all the possibilities, right? Mm, (laughs) To the mm. smells, to the tastes, to maybe starting to sit up in the lap of the caregiver, the ideal, remember ideal mother, but ideal caregiver, to having that safety of in the therapeutic relationship of it's okay to start to expand and open up. And then... Eventually from sitting, we go to all fours and we do the crawl away and we come back, crawl mm-hmm. away and come back. And going back is that, that parent oriented attachment, right? That hopefully secure attachment yeah. redone in the therapeutic relationship. I go away for a while. It's been three or four weeks and then I come back to therapy, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And then the, I'm starting to find myself, look at me, watch me. Is this okay? And maybe I need to return to being held again. We can kind of, cycle through these throughout the day. And then eventually to being that self-supported adult that we are, our, our brain is fully developed, but so is our sense of self. So this might happen you know, past age 27. <laughs> this might cool. happen a little later. Yeah. But this is all from this creation called the circles of support. And yeah. one of my mentors created this, this particular circles of support report talking about infant development anyway so from the womb to being in the pouch being held to being on the lap to crawling away to coming back to stand and watch me we're starting to stand up on our own two feet to eventually self-supported adult all of these things 
all of these shapes are also very familiar in this world of, of movement and yoga. <laughs> we can also see some of these things play out in yoga, like these shapes. Oh, these, you know, people made these shapes and oh, this feels good. It feels good for a certain reason. It feels good to our body when we're in a safe place to make some of these shapes. And if we can bring that into our consciousness as we practice the shapes, then we can say, oh, I'm redoing this right now. I'm not doing this movement or this pose or to just make the shape to, that's my goal, but to really re-experience what it feels like to be curled up and held. Mm. To start to explore a little bit of what am I hungry for? What do I smell? How can I look around and open up my neck and notice where else maybe my body wants to turn and move and expand or come back together and contract? So what I'm proposing in those shapes, right? That can take a while to go to. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of times people come in, and they, uh-uh, my body is over there. I'm not going there. That's cool. We're not going there for a long time. That is mm, it's fine. Mm, mm. So that's number one. It's like, where I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to meet you where you are. When I was uh, doing my internship, I taught yoga at an eating disorders treatment center and I led the yoga groups. And I would have three, you know, a group of you know, maybe three to 12 people. It just depended every day. And different stages of change, right? Mm-hmm. Different levels of motivation. And I had to lead that group. This is body stuff. I mean, I had people come in and say, uh-uh, nope. And so I said, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You can stay on the sofa. And you can stay present in the group as much as possible. You, can, you don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do this yet. So having that trauma-informed approach is important. Also doing that and, and trying to offer different, offer a teaching or, a, or an idea or ideas to three to 12 people was, was such a challenge, but it also taught me about being trauma informed and not forcing people before they're ready. Mm-hmm. And that's tricky in the eating disorders treatment world because insurance wants to see some progress right it gets really complicated that's right and and i think this raises a really good point and an article that i wrote a couple of years ago why eating disorder treatment needs depth psychotherapy more now than ever before and really that for me is Mm -hmm. around having take as much time as you need Mm -hmm. we know in traditional or classic psychotherapies which actually back when i trained we did we included some somatic training in ours, but only a weekend or two. But it was more open-ended. It was more really build the relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you go to any kind of Jungian or even mm-hmm. psychodynamic mm-hmm. therapist, we spend a lot of time building the relationship. And a lot of, in Australia, we have Medicare. So people get a reimbursement for part of their therapy session. But mm-hmm. historically, it's been six to 10 sessions. And I mean, for me, I'm still getting to know someone in, in six to 10 sessions. It's, and if yeah. there's been trauma, building trust after having early childhood trauma, that can take a lot of time. Absolutely. Having that womb experience again in therapy where maybe a lot's not even being said, but the yeah. presence of the therapist kind of doing the holding in the room can be significant. And like you were saying, also, I think you brought up such a wonderful point as far as, oh, yeah, my tone of voice could be either mm-hmm. inviting or it could be really triggering, right? In the sense, too, is to invite anger 
invite, push. That is so wonderful that you can feel comfortable enough to push against me. I would be even more concerned. <laughs> I'm going to do anything you want, right? So then we get into, oh, okay. So in other words, like how can we recognize the matches and the mismatches in the relationship? And that, that gets that can get tricky, but that the mismatches are just as important as the matches. That the mm. matches feel really good, right? <laughs> it, it yeah. Feels like, oh yes, but that the mismatches of I'm not ready to do that, therapist, or I need to challenge you on this. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not wanting to do the work. It means that they want to feel safe enough to push. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, you know, in infant development. And we talk about infant development because setting down the, the imprints of safety or not. When I push against you, I'm looking over here because I'm tired of being with you. Can I do that? When I do something that might not be approved by caregiver, mm -hmm. right? Am I going to be shut down? Am I going to be maybe redirected to something safer? That push away is so important. And it can come up in our bodies when, how can I have a safe push and move through this so I don't have to hurt myself or hurt maybe somebody else? Mm. And so we're really, just for our listeners, we're really talking about working in the here and now in the therapy room with these concepts, aren't we? Absolutely, the here and now. And the, the here and now, and it can take time. And I think that's my big thing is, you know, this takes so much time. And it, it's important Sometimes that's not good news to people, right? But we don't need to rush it, that it can take time, that we want to keep you safe. Exactly. So if, if we do get to a place of being medically compromised, then we do need to have that approach of that more directive approach and that it's out of care. It's out of that holding. Yeah. And something you mentioned earlier too around pushing up against the therapist. I mean, some people may go quite some time without it can be very scary to be to assert yourself in any way and that's okay too but I always sort of for people who have had difficulty with that it's almost like therapy is really working when the client someone who's been very compliant for a long time for example and then they start rebelling by turning up late or something or <laughs> you know, it's, um, yes in those subtle ways yeah yes it doesn't have to be a, an explicit push. It can be more implicit. And, exactly. and if we look at that as like the individuation that's happening, exactly. we, we do have to crawl away. We do have to stand on our own. Yeah. And that's the point of therapy. And I think some people where, especially with long-term therapy, they get concerned that they're going to be in therapy forever. The point of therapy is to end one day from my perspective. And it's the two-year-old and the teenager there's been this sort of symbiosis and then they start to separate and individuate and become more of the fathering energy, actually, the sort of masculine yeah, yeah. energy, engaging yes. their own will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned a few times the good enough mother, and I just want to come back to that because we also mm -hmm. haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, I don't think. So you're talking about Donald Winnicott, but would you just say a little bit more about, because we, we keep using terms like holding, and I don't know mm -hmm. if you've, you've suddenly said like mirroring, and these are mm -hmm. all terms that Winnicott sort of came up with. I think that was back in the 50s, wasn't it? Something 50s or 60s. Mm -hmm. Would you just help our listeners understand, yeah, just a little bit more about that and also maybe say something about attunement as well? Yeah, so as far as good enough mother, and I'm going to return to 
the matches and the mismatches again, because I do think that's important in terms of, can I see you, can I hear you? And at the same time, can we have somewhat of a conflict, but there's still a holding. I'm still that space that you can come back to. I'm still the anchor point. And when I say I mean, like the, the caregiver, the good enough mother, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just in terms of if, if that person were speaking. So good enough meaning, I see the majority of your needs. I'm human. I'm not going to get to all of them. I'm going to have some blind spots. So that's why you know, I know as far as eating disorder treatment, you used to have a lot of focus on the mother, like the mother who raised the child mm-hmm. who now has mm-hmm. an eating disorder and a lot of blaming there. I think what they meant to have it, the, the idea of how can we instill that mothering quality in the child instead of blaming the mom and saying, you did this, so let's take the child away and fix the child, right? Yeah, and then it's yeah. like, wait a second, wait a second. There's reparative work here. And it hopefully it's possible. I think that that's where it is. Obviously, psychoeducation around a lot of different things, but around attachment and how when a mother or father or parent or caregiver has not had their own good enough. Then it's yeah. going to be really hard for them to give that to their child. And that's where it's like multi-generational trauma gets into this. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to have blind spots. And at the same time, the good old thing, it's, it is about the repair. There's ruptures are going to happen, but the repairs are so possible and worth it. So in the sense that, you know, majority of the time, can I be a good enough? enough mother? Can I attune to my child? Can I see them, see their needs and meet their needs as much as possible, right? With the resources that I have. And if I don't, am I willing to do some repair work later? And that comes up a lot. And, you know, like the family-based treatment, as far as when we're doing a, a kind of a formal program with, you know, refeeding. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So in the sense of using caregivers as a resource, and I think that's so lovely, you know, helping to reconnect the family. Just a note on that, and I absolutely support FBT, but what I find with, I work with older, I don't work with under 18s, but a lot of the women I've worked with have sort of said that obviously, and coming back to, I think a lot of these mothers have had their own trauma. I guess my concern with FBT is what happens when the caregivers don't have a particularly, they haven't a healed their own trauma when they haven't got a particularly healthy relationship with food and body themselves. I think a lot of my clients have questioned, why on earth would I want this person to be in charge of my food and my recovery, I guess. So mm-hmm. I don't work, obviously, because I don't work with under 18s, I don't really work with that model. But I mean, it sounds good in theory to me, but what happens when the mothering isn't good enough mothering? I guess. Yeah. That's yeah. I'm and that's, I think at the top, I have learned, I am learning, aren't we always learning, right? To be really clear about that, that this is going to get rockier before it's going to get easier. It's going to take time and it's going to be challenging. And it's going to take everyone coming to the table with courage and vulnerability. So that is hard stuff because that's building the relationship with the parents. Mm. Then sometimes Mm. you have parents in two separate homes, right? Maybe you have one parent, on board one parent off I try to get at least one parent if we if that's the situation I try to get at least one parent on to say we need one parent here to do this to we could this is so possible in recreating that safetyness 
giving that environment again, oh, this is a safer place. I, my body can get back to a place because I am supported to relax enough that I don't have to be that disconnected from food, that I can tolerate what's coming up. If there is some trauma that needs to come up, we can work through that in therapy, mm. but I can get to a place eventually. The food doesn't have such a charge because it is about the food, but it's not about food. In the beginning of treatment, it is about the food. We gotta do some food stuff. But it's not about the food. And when yeah. we can get to those roots so that it's not about the food and do that relational work, then it can get so much easier. And it's so possible. But yes, being very direct with the parents up front, that this is, we don't have an identified patient here. And I, sometimes they don't yeah, like to hear really that. Important. No, that's really, I'm really glad you've said that because I know certainly when I've had notes from treatment centers, that the language around the inverted commas sick child is very pathologizing. And yeah, I often yeah. say eating disorders are family disorders. And look, I'm not really a fan of the word disorder either, to be honest, but. I completely agree. It's not mm -hmm. just one person. Um, the, the child is acting out whatever is going on in the relational system within mm -hmm. the family, in, from my perspective anyway. so Right. And it's like how to relay that to parents mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. gently. And then what I usually find is that there are one or two parents who it just it's stirred up so much of their own, either so much of the time, feeding, mm -hmm. eating, body addiction issues and once we can come come to face with that and say oh look at this this is just looking for a way home it is possible let's be tender with it and then let's work with the family dynamics around it mm -hmm. so you can do your own work because that's the thing it's like how can the, the caregivers do their own work yeah so then they can be the container you know for the kids because that's what i'm always saying like i don't want to be your you know, teens therapists forever. I want them to come to you. At the same time though, Jody, sometimes we have to teach the kids how to do it mm. because we're not having parent or parents who are on board. Yeah. And if there are parents with significant trauma histories, what we know is that unless there is some kind of intervention and that, that's not always therapy, it could be a spiritual practice or a yoga practice or yeah. something where that the person has turned their life around and healed their sort of history, mm -hmm. then, I mean, obviously that makes all the difference, but for caregivers who are still very much in their own trauma history, it can be challenging. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And that's why it takes time and it's slow and you, yeah, it's, it's a delicate balance of being direct about it. Mm -hmm. And then also inviting them to be courageous, to be vulnerable, to say it's, it's okay, this takes time. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah. on your website, you talk about distress tolerance movement and embodied relational dances. Is this what we're, are we talking about this already or is there? Yeah. So for example, as far as like how to practice distress tolerance when you start to notice what comes up in your body. Let's just take, for example, a teen, right? Mm -hmm. Who's doing the FBT, who's having to follow a plan for some refeeding to make sure we're medically stable. A lot of yeah. times, for example, that right there, because it is more direct and the feelings do come to the surface a little bit faster, right? Because it's, we're medically compromised where we really need to say, how do we keep you stable as the big feelings come up, right? Yeah. So when the big feelings come up, we can say, we can write a list of things and we can have these things that we do, which I'm absolutely for the cognitive therapies. And at the same time, where's it coming up in your body? Where yeah. do you feel that anger or the angst or the anxiety or the heat? There's something you can't put words around, but it's there. 
-hmm. And when we can do that and then find ways to say for whatever the maybe perhaps the behavior is, well, instead of hurting yourself through um, behaviors, not just going to stick to behavior. So we're not triggering here. Um, sure. Yeah. What's something else you want to do? For example, if there's exercise involved or a place in the body that feels the sensation or urge, then we might put a hand there. We might take some kind of movement there. For example, if someone is more dissociative and we're some anger, some angst, some heat coming up because we're having to eat, it's waking up our body and our brain, right? And starting to feel more present in our bodies because we're having to eat what is sustainable, right? Then in that sense, oh, I'm taking up space. I've got this, I'm feeling my feelings now because I can't put them away. What do I do with that? So sometimes it can be helpful to, when I say have like a little bit of contralateral movement, when we feel that surge of fight flight coming through, like how can we maybe do some twists, letting the limbs cross the body. Like when you walk, you have mm-hmm. contralateral movement, right? With the right, right arm, left leg, left arm, right leg, that were some twists, which also, also offer some contralateral movement, something like that. Now I'm not suggesting this as you, this is very particular for a certain person. So FYI, sometimes maybe it helps to push feet into the ground or push hands to the ground. Mm -hmm. When we push against somebody or something, we find ourselves. So we can also sense the body, which might make us even more, oh, can I tolerate the heat of having to do this refeeding work? Or another piece might, all of all the behaviors that might want to happen Maybe I need to take my hand and instead of using my hand in a different way that might trigger a behavior, I get some, a crayon and I scribble on some paper and get it out that way, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, pattern or color, something that needs to come up and out of my body, but on paper, right? So that could be a way. If I feel like another way of, you know, dissociative numbing might be to where, oh, this might be a time that perhaps I want to eat but I also am not hungry, but I'm feeling a sensation or a feeling that I want to eat, but I also know that I'm already stuffed. What do I do with that? You know, mm. Where is that coming up in my body? Is there a way I can maybe do some contralateral movement, maybe push, maybe have my own curled up fetal position in a chair or on the sofa or on the floor that I need to be held. And in that sense, sometimes making these shapes or having this awareness of the body and how we might need to push or be held or take up space in relationship with mother earth, because therapist isn't around all the time or forever to see, to hold, to hear all the words or the, the felt sense of I've got you, that kind of energetic holding. So what about mother earth? Having a relationship with how can I feel supported and present in my body with mother earth? That's a relational dance right there. Yeah, that's really important. And I think uh, more and more we're seeing the benefits of all the research of being in nature even. And I remember reading somewhere that someone who did the same walk every day for the whole year found it really holding and supportive just of Mm. the natural rhythm of life and death and rebirth and uh, nourishment and all those sort of things came up. So I think you've raised a really good point there too around things for people that aren't in therapy because we know being in therapy with someone who is trauma informed and attachment focused and obviously somatic uh, psychotherapy typically do work with the relationship the way that you are describing today 
but for people at home who aren't and also for people who can't afford therapy and maybe only like here people will get their sort of six to ten sessions typically it is only cognitive behavioral therapy a lot of the time so for people who aren't able to access this approach for whatever reason you're starting to talk about mm-hmm. things that they can do at home so what else can they do and i think you just talking about mothering earlier that sort of I know you've written about that what else do you recommend great question and I think it it connects with how what I was just talking about with earth with something bigger than Mm. you like a bed getting maybe on the floor in a chair and having a surface beneath you that can maybe provide some support Mm. now it might be inanimate I get that Mm -hmm. but if there's any way to say but this is bigger than me this right here is bigger than me. And can I draw in some kind of, if, if someone is spiritual or religious, great, they can pull in that. But I mean, who's to argue that Mother Earth is bigger than all of us, right? Mm-hmm. So we can maybe start to explore that something's bigger than me, something can hold me, something can see me. Is there any way that I can start to notice how much I can feel supported by what's underneath me. Can I lean into it? Do I collapse or do I feel really sucked up where I never can even feel anything beneath me? Or can I have a sense of, yeah, I can be held. I can breathe. I can feel like I'm being nourished from what's underneath me. And I can Mm. also ease and settle into it and find some support. And I can find that rhythm of, yes, I can feel my back against the chair. I can feel my elbows on my desk. I can feel my feet on I can curl up into the bed and let the bed hold me like a cocoon or womb of ideal parent. Those can be ways that we can start to say, I can invite the possibility of Mm -hmm. having a relationship with my body. I can invite the possibility of being my body more and knowing that I'm not alone and that I can start to feel, oh, wow. Okay. Something bigger than me. It can take some time, but that's a way, yeah, to say, how can I start coming back to my body throughout the day? Where do I need to curl up? Where can I start to feel like I can just move from the inside out, like from my my belly brain, deep in the center of my body, and maybe start to expand outward? As you're talking, I'm thinking about over the years, a lot of clients with depression and there's this sort of sense of not being allowed to slow down or pay attention Mm -hmm. to themselves because as children, the feelings were often dismissed. And when you're talking about climbing up into the bed and I'm thinking my supervisor's somatic, she, you know, recommended a, a weighted blanket, for example, and to just to allow oneself the time to do that without any kind of judgment towards themselves. Yeah. And I think, have you ever heard of that instead of, depressed deep rest <laughs> oh no i've i've it. no i've only ever heard of it as depressed like what's being depressed and it's depressed feelings oh cool yeah yeah yeah, so, like yeah. yeah. oh deep rest. yeah feeling. that's good deep. i like that yeah i did not make that up i saw it so okay <laughs> but deep rest and mm. i really like that because it's like oh honey you need some deep rest yeah those feelings are there to feel they will end Go down there and see them, befriend them, be with them. They'll guide you. So absolutely, like, how can I allow myself to, if it is the depressed, if it is a shutdown, I've got to be here because I've got to find a way to feel safe enough to let whatever shutdown come up and out 
which will eventually happen. It's like the possum playing dead. Once the, the coyote has run away, right, then the, the possum can, whoop, oh, I can run now and I can shake it off. But that mm -hmm, happens to mm -hmm. us too physiologically. Like how can I, oh, I don't have to live like that anymore, but I feel a little bit, blah, how do I, whoop, uh, 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 how do I do this? Okay, now I can find some tools to help me manage this and I can feel grounded and feel all the feelings, but not feel overwhelmed with anymore. Yeah. yeah, and so we're talking about not just befriending the body, but befriending the feelings too, befriending feelings as well, mm -hmm. aren't we? Oh, yes. And one of the things yes. I actually do, which is exactly what you're talking about, is when I was little, I used to go to my grandfather's house in New Zealand. That was a very safe place for me. So I used to get on the plane on my own as a child, and obviously they took care of me, but I'd go there almost every sort of school holidays. And he had this rocking chair that was like this big rocking chair. And when he died, uh, a family friend had it in storage for me. And then I tried to have it brought back to Australia. But because of our strict quarantine, they weren't allowed, I wasn't allowed to bring it in because of wood issues with the wood. But what I did is I went and bought the same, I found the same chair. It was a lazy mm -hmm. boy chair. And uh. I covered it in my own fabric and what you know that you can choose from the shop. But when I feel anxious or sad or even angry, I get the weighted blanket and I go and sit in my grandfather's rocking chair and just sit and rock in this chair that is bigger than me. And it is just so soothing. And I remember writing a face uh, Instagram post about it. I actually sound... When, it sort of sounds a little bit mad, like sitting there rocking with a weighted blanket. And then I thought, oh, there you are judging yourself like um, that. Yeah, yeah. So um, coming back to, and I think it's something you were going to talk about as well, being compassionate towards oneself and, mm -hmm. and just being kind and actually mothering. I mean, I would say to a child, take time, sit, rest. Do you need a, a back rub or a whatever it is? But uh, we don't tend to do that for ourselves. Right. And yes, and that's the idea of being able to have the relational dance with a helper, right? The trauma-informed yeah. helper. Yeah. And then eventually, like you said earlier, eventually get to a place that, oh, I can do this on my own. I can be that self-supported adult. I can absolutely start to have my own inner narrative of, oh, honey, have a rest. It's okay. And so when either through therapy or if people are to start to implement some of these things at home, what's the long-term impact of that? Being able to explore the possibility of living from the, when I say inside out, I mean like literally and figuratively in the sense of like being aware of your body and how you can like move through the day from the middle of your body out. So it's like a, a real sense of presence in the body mm. and having that, when I say felt sense, also being able to say, oh, I can ride the waves of what I face every day. And I know how to take care of myself as my body notices and as I might need to recoil or expand or push or soften all those things. Like, how can I do that in such a way that I stay present in my body? So I notice the signals my body gives me. So like for the, the basic functioning of my body that I need, I need to eat and I need to use the bathroom and I need to sleep and I need to also play. That's mm -hmm. also a really important mm -hmm. part of it, right? The social engagement piece of the relationships with others and with my own self. So ultimately getting to that place of how can I mother myself, mother my relationship with my body and mm -hmm. my mind, my spirit, I would say if there has been significant trauma, it would be really helpful to have someone to be the witness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, it, 
Not everybody can do that. Sometimes being that witness, once we can find the words around it, can be journaling. Can mm-hmm. I might not be able to put it into words for years, but maybe once I do, I can let my journal be my witness. So, you know, if I can't get to therapy, yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say that was a lot of my early work of, of being able to sense what was going on in my body. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, and then I got therapy and I went a little deeper. Yeah. It's, and I think once, I mean, this is quite tricky early on for people because we've been so estranged from our bodies, but once you start to implement some of these tools and techniques, I guess, and then also for people who are in into therapy in a relational style of therapy, really, I mean, I, I think early recovery for people, there has to be some hope that things are going to get better. And yeah. I think when people are very, people, even chronic dieters with full-on eating disorders, whatever it is, that I think those early days are so tricky and that you feel like you're going to have to manage this stuff forever. But what you're talking about mm-hmm. is really building an inner resource center mm-hmm. and a, building that inner mother. You know, we, I use subpersonality, so similar to internal family systems. But once you've mm-hmm. built that inner yeah. mother, mm-hmm. you don't actually need to manage your eating disorder anymore you just become a better mother to yourself. I don't know how else yes. to say that. Am well, I saying yes. that right? Yes. And I think that's such an important point that it's just sometimes this race to get rid of behaviors. Mm-hmm. Let's just reduce these behaviors and get rid of them. And the behaviors tell us something. Let's just slow down and say, well, what is this teaching me? Mm-hmm. And, and can it be a practice to every time I have an urge or a thought, oh, what does this mean? You know, what's under this? It's not just a behavior. It's here to teach me. I know I have better skills, tools to be able to reconnect with my body and my mind, my spirit to say, oh, this is how I mother myself through this. Mm -hmm. This is ideal mother through this. And how can I nurture myself and feed myself really deeply here? And it's a lifelong practice. It doesn't necessarily mean that we don't ever have a a struggle again, but it's like, oh, but I have a whole new way. So it's less charged. So it's like, oh yeah, that's not. Oh, yeah, uh, this is, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think women are going to get so much out of our conversation today. And I know that you have some offerings on your website. And obviously, look, the problem with therapists in the States, I think you can only practice with people within your state. Is that correct? Okay, so great question. Yeah. yeah. So for counseling, I can only do um, counseling with clients in my state. Mm-hmm. I am an embodiment coach, a chief or two embodiment uh-huh. coach, chief or two, a CHI, and then four, F-O-R, two, T-W-O. So chief or two. So like chi, like, like energy. It's the, the energetic dance of healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. And so this is where it would be more coaching, so more directive with the body-based techniques. So it wouldn't be counseling, but it's still trauma-informed polyvagal informed and attachment based. So in other words, we're still doing using a lot of the shapes and movements, the gestures from that developmental movement research from child psychiatrist Judith Kustenberg and dance movement therapist Susan Lohman using the the developmental movement and attachment theory and of course polyvagal theory and trauma-informed approach to say how can we find some ways, some practices to get in the body and use these practices as a way for ultimately healthy individuation and to manage 
kind of energy. So I, I do that coaching really with anyone. So I do have a giveaway. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Tell everyone about your exciting giveaway. Yeah. So this is a, a free 50-minute session uh, for, with embodiment coaching. And it's really the first person who emails me and has listened to this podcast and can tell me something about how the embodiment coaching that I'm talking about now uh, yeah, could really benefit them and how they would use that in this embodied way from the mindful movement as mothering medicine. So I'll have it on my website too and reference this podcast. So yeah, it's really yeah. generous. And so that because it's coaching, anyone from anywhere in the world can email in for that opportunity. So yes. thank you so much. I mean, I could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately yeah. our time's running yeah. out. What I will do is I will likewise reference everything in the show notes. So if anyone has any, would like to dive into this stuff a little bit deeper, Caroline's website will be on the show notes. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Jody. It's been a pleasure. This is episode 31. For the show notes, go to thesoulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions 31 M bodied. Since recording, Caroline has created a three-course continuing education series called Embodied Nourishment, Chi for Two, Co-Regulation Practices for Professionals, Working with Disordered Eating. These courses, which explore the relational dances and embodiment of both helper and clients using developmental movement, are offered now through until January 2022. They are all trauma-sensitive, polyvagal informed and attachment-based. The courses explore body-based practices within the therapeutic relationship, early feeding and eating patterns, and the importance of the developmental fighting rhythms, multi-generational trauma, and the connection between puberty and eating issues. So for details, visit mbodiedtherapy.com. So that's mbodiedtherapy.com. And that's for therapists. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Love this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind, and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.